0: thing. I feel like I've been in a coma for about 20 years, and I'm just now waking up.
1: And welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast that will be dead in one year. But of course, we don't know that yet. (laughs) I'm Chris, your podcast host most likely to have a crush on him, be defending him, love him, want to have like 10,000
2: of his babies.
3: (laughs) I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host most likely to sell this house today.
2: (laughs) I believe in you. And I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to not mean to scare you. I just think you're interesting. (laughs) Creepy.
1: (laughs) Creepy. On the last episode of the podcast, we looked at Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. Today, we are continuing the flower power by looking at another flora-themed film. We're going to look closer at American Beauty, the 1999 Best Picture winner about lust, death, and plastic bags in suburbia. Directed by Sam Mendes and written by Alan Ball, the film stars Annette Bening, Chris Cooper, Thora Birch, Wes Bentley, Mina Suvari, Allison Janney, and... The
3: most beautiful thing I've ever seen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Baggy. The
3: bag. Can we start this episode with, do you ever feel like a plastic bag going through oh, the wind? God.
1: I knew that would come up, and I really want to fucking strangle Katy Perry for pretty much ruining
2: that scene of this movie. Which Wait, was... I'm sorry. I know it's hard for you to imagine, but I'm not extremely well-versed in the Katy Perry catalog.
3: The song Firework, the first line begins. Do you ever feel like a
1: plastic bag? Drifting through the wind, wanting to start again. Do you ever feel, feel so paper-thin? Like a house
2: of cards one blow from caving in. Do you ever...
3: video podcast for that look you just gave me
2: why weren't we filming that he can never do that face intentionally that was like the most pure look of disgust i think i've ever witnessed a silent ringtone
1: no i mean the song
2: firework oh god
3: Where were
1: we?
2: And that was American <laughs> Beauty. And that was Chris silently judging us.
1: <laughs> uh, Katy Perry, to get way ahead of ourselves, there's a scene of a plastic bag that was quite beautiful and wonderful <laughs> at the time and then just became one of those things, like anything in like Titanic where it's just like... Right. It's become such a thing that it's like kind of dorky and funny. And then Katy Perry fucking made a song out of it and just like cemented it. And now... It, you just
2: can't, like watch the scene can't. of that like, <laughs> so it's not even just that she directly, like describes what is literally happening in that moment. But, like, that is the whole verse. That's, like, the whole first verse of that song, seemingly. Yeah. <laughs> I... Flashing
3: back to, like, 2011 or whenever this song came
1: out.
2: Doesn't she also have firework tits? In the music
1: video? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, like, also American Beauty, but fireworks instead of roses.
3: It's not filmed like that, though.
2: <laughs> no, but...
3: Wow, we're going off on a big tangent. Let's go back to American <laughs>
2: Beauty. <laughs> Where were you, Chris? This became a meme in pop culture. Yeah. You know, in, like, all memes that eventually died. And Katy Perry is the murderer. <laughs> as she so often is.
1: <laughs> yep, American <laughs> Beauty, that's our topic.
0: I need a father who's a role model. Not some horny geek boy who's going to spray his shorts whenever I bring a girlfriend home from school. What a lame Someone really should just put him out of his misery.
1: Want me to kill him for you? Yeah. Would you? And before we get into the main discussion of the movie, I had an opening question for you guys. To address the elephant in the room, what do you do with a problem like Kevin Spacey? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Kevin Spacey has been canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For allegations of sexual misconduct with several minors, uh... He's not the only one. Uh, I think there are a lot of things that we would probably cover on this podcast that we will not.
3: Yeah, on our list was Thriller, so that's not happening anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, The Cosby Show is something I would be interested in looking at as a cultural moment, and yet...
2: And a cultural milestone in a lot of ways. Uh, and, Roseanne, yeah uh, no.
1: it's feasible that we would do like a Woody Allen movie that we're probably not gonna do anymore, <laughs> certainly not. I don't think we would ever do an R. Kelly episode, but <laughs> hey, we're definitely not going to now. I don't believe we can fly <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, like uh, how do you guys like how do you guys approach works from this era? that are now so problematic.
3: Like they're tainted kind <laughs> yeah, of Yeah, like
1: do you, can you still enjoy them?
3: It depends, and that's the most honest answer. It's not a it's not a catch-all. Yep. I I personally cannot watch a Woody Allen movie again. His mark is all over them. He stars in them, he writes them, he directs them. I just want nothing to do with them. I have watched Seven recently and enjoyed it. I've watched Baby Driver and and enjoyed it. Are we still angry at Mel Gibson or not? Because I can still watch Braveheart, and he directed it and stars in it, and yet, for some reason, I can compartmentalize my brain and watch Braveheart and enjoy it. It really depends. It depends on what the person did. I don't think I could ever listen to a Michael Jackson song again, willingly, you know? So it really depends. It's it's not an easy answer. Like, will I ever listen to Louis C.K. again? 'Cause I love to stand up. I don't know. If he released something, would I listen to it? I don't know if I would. I'm certainly not in the mood to. I can't say I wouldn't ever to see what he had to say, but I can't say that I'm I'm certainly in the mood to be like, let's put let's put on Louis C. K. Let's put on um I you know, um ignition remix. <laughs> you know, like I'm just like simultaneously.
2: I'll, see how they play against m- each other. A
3: lot of the time the joy has been sucked out of the things that I enjoy because of, of what the person did and sometimes I can ignore it. If they're a supporting character or, you know, it, it really depends. It's hard.
2: Yeah, I think this is one of the most important questions that we've talked about on this show. Thank you. <laughs> no, truly. And, and I definitely mean it as like, I also mean it as a compliment. We live in a time where revisiting any number of the things that defined our tastes defined our childhood are now subjectively and objectively problematic in one way or another, really offensive in retrospect, or even just really, quote unquote, of their time. Becky, I think you're exactly right that it can only ever be situational and subjective and up to each individual person, whether or not they get any joy out of watching or hearing those things created by these people who turn out to also be monstrous human beings um there are lots of them who i can't bear to encounter the work of anymore um woody allen michael jackson most fucking certainly and if anyone out there hasn't seen finding neverland they actually ought to watch the documentary Finding oh, yeah. Neverland is you very can different. skip. Finding Neverland. <laughs> yeah, don't don't watch this. <laughs> <Neverland>. Leaving Neverland, <laughs> finding the truth. It's the most well-structured documentary breaking down like what sexual abuse actually is and how systematic it is and how people get groomed into accepting it and those people's families do. Like it's a documentary about fame. In light of watching it, I really can't derive joy from listening to those incredibly joyful songs anymore. And those were really like some of my favorite songs growing up. I think time and life make hypocrites of us all and we all like to think that we both have really strong principles and we like to think that we'll always stick to them but situationally we really never do and all of this is kind of constantly shifting ground but especially now in the time that we live in the only thing I can say universally is it just changes your experience of watching these things it just innately changes the way you see a performance in a movie when you find out something like this about a person when you find out that as a human being they're this shitty that inherently affects the value that they put into creating whatever it is they create that's part of what they brought into the experience of doing that so i mean we'll talk about the ways that it kind of ripples through american beauty but like not to skip ahead this was like a pretty big movie to me when i was younger but i absolutely see it differently now
1: Yeah, to me, there's a few things to take in mind. One is like how authorial is the person who's problematic to the movie. In the case of Kevin Spacey, he's an actor in a movie. He's not a director or a writer. So we'll get (laughs) to how he influences this movie in a little bit. But um, Bill Cosby, The Cosby Show, it's named after him. like He was the guiding force behind it. Michael Jackson, obviously, was hugely authorial over his music.
2: Notoriously so.
1: Roseanne, even though she's a bit of a different case that it's not like a sexual misconduct thing, but her personality, that brand is what was so celebrated in her sitcom Roseanne. And it's hard now to separate that from the kind of toxic racial and political views she's expressed. Woody Allen, writing, directing... Like you said, I also think that there's something to be said for, like, when these things were discovered. Like, definitely I am not interested in watching a new Woody Allen movie, and they're probably not going to be released for the most part. Is there value still, I think, in, like, watching Annie Hall or, you know, he's made some great movies? Like, yes. Like, I own a couple of those movies, and eventually I probably will watch them again. And yeah, it's... I think there's also... Like, right now is a bit of a sensitive time for a lot of these people, because a lot of, like, Kevin Spacey and Michael Jackson, not that all of these things are completely new, but that they have been brought to light more viscerally recently. Um, But, like, eventually I think it'll be interesting to go back to these things, and not, not to merely just enjoy them, but to actually kind of see to what degree their monstrosity influenced the art that they made like Woody Allen specifically has like a lot of romances with underage girls in his movies and Michael Jackson's persona is like part of like his otherworldliness and his like perpetual childhood was part of his brand and I think right now we're a little too close to some of these things but eventually it will be kind of interesting to like look and see, like, how that actually, like, maybe was part of the art that he created and all these people created.
2: Um, so, I mean, Chris, I think I used to be really in line with the way that you see this. Um, I used to think it was more possible to kind of split that hair a bit, um, depending on when someone was accused or, you know, depending on any number of things. Um until this year uh, a, an op-ed came out i don't remember the publication it was in but we can post it maybe i don't know um and it was written by the girl who was the real life inspiration for mariel mariel, mariel hemingway yeah mariel hemingway's character in manhattan which is another one of woody allen's i think greatest movies i Mm -hmm. think it's a real artistic achievement and is kind of universally seen as one of his artistic achievements um but the girl she plays in the center of the romantic plot of that movie was like 16 years old at the time in real life not even 17 and she was originally that young in the script and they made woody change it She detailed very specifically and methodically not just the structure of their relationship, but the impact it's had on her life, and I can never see Manhattan the same way again. I might watch it at some point, but I can never see it the same way again. Yeah, I have not gone back to watch a Woody (laughs) Allen movie in quite a
1: while, in part because like, a lot of the stories about him just Have come more to my attention and most people's attention more recently, even though they've obviously been circling around for a long time. I do think it's subjective. I think you just have to decide for yourself. Like, do you want to watch this? There's nothing wrong with being like, I'm not going to watch any Woody Allen movie again, or like, if I hear my like, I don't want to hear any Michael Jackson music again. Like, I have heard like like (laughs) I was in a cafe the other day and they were playing like nonstop Michael Jackson, like a couple of days ago, and I was like, hmm. really? Like, like it feels like almost a cruel thing to do, and yet I, I don't think quite, even though a lot of um, people in our circles and, like, uh, media people have been watching Leaving Neverland, I don't know that it's completely seeped out into the mainstream. I think it has. Uh, and it's just weird to sort of, you know, have this reaction to something that would have, no one would have thought twice about it, you know, a few months I ago. I think
3: people love... In his case, people love that music, that they have such a strong connection to that music that they need to compartmentalize and be like, this is this, and it. I have my own relationship with this music, and he is this monster who did these
1: other things. It's hard to blame anyone for loving a song that they right. love, especially one that they have loved for a long time before they... Had any idea that there was any problem with it, and yeah, you can't really fault someone for that.
3: If it comes out tomorrow that Steven Spielberg did something terrible, no, <laughs> do you, like I think about that sometimes when I when I, I talk know. to people about this stuff, how they love any hall and they're gonna, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, I don't know what I would do. Am I never gonna watch Jurassic Park again? Because. Steven Spielberg is, you know, fill in the blank. I don't know if I could do that. So it really it does depend on the person. I just don't like the people that yeah. say this person can't be bad because they made mm-hmm. good art. You know, I I, that I don't, and I feel
2: like there is definitely a certain percentage of the people who maintain the kind of like position of not knowing and like continue listening to the music or watching their movies. I don't know. There's always a large segment of the people who do that who just choose not to know. Mm -hmm. And I think at some level we all do that. We all do let these things slide to some extent. But I think it is letting things slide. I think it is kind of justifying on some level the actions of monstrous people. Well, yeah, I mean,
1: it's not like Michael Jackson was free and clear of all allegations until, like, Leaving Neverland came out. Like, there was an extent to which pretty much all of us turned a blind eye to it for a long time. And now... It's true, yeah. Some people are still choosing to, but is that any worse than kind of, you know, the way that... Because I listened to Michael Jackson songs like ten years ago, even knowing I didn't know very specifically like what allegations were, but I knew that there were rumors about something, and I, I didn't, I didn't look into them. I didn't think critically. I, I just listened to the music and enjoyed it, and. Uh, I guess everyone has, like, a certain point where they're like, oh, maybe not anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, not everyone has reached that point, I guess.
2: Well, and I think it says something to, like, so the power of social media and the kind of speed at which things come now. Because I think it, you're exactly right It's like you come to a level of awareness And then beyond that It changes your perception of that person Whether that means you never listen to it again Or whether it just means like It's going to color your experience of it
1: Let's talk about repression
0: in America <laughs> <laughs> My name is Lester Burnham This is my neighborhood This is my street This is my life I'm 42 years old in less than a year I'll be dead of course I don't know that yet and in a way
1: I'm dead already Alan Ball was born on May 13th, 1957, in Georgia, the son of an aircraft inspector and homemaker. At age 13, he was in the passenger seat of a car that his sister Marianne was driving when they got into an accident and she was killed. Ball has said that the tragedy caused his family to explode apart. His passion was for theater. He worked in public access television and for ad while writing plays, including the titles, Five Women Wearing the Same Dress and Your Mother's Butt. <laughs> That led him to write for the ABC sitcom Grace Under Fire, starring Brett Butler, who was verbally abusive toward him on set, (laughs) and probably toward everyone.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that checks out.
1: He moved on to Sybil, but he also found uh, that the star's control over that series was limiting, that these actresses really just wanted them to be like PR pieces and would kind of balk at anything that they felt would be embarrassing for them to do. Mm -hmm. So he decided to write a spec script for a feature, and that feature was American Beauty, and that was a good decision. It was originally conceived as a stage play inspired by the Amy Fisher scandal. <laughs> Amy Fisher was 17 when she shot Mary Jo Buttafuoco. And wife. she
3: lived in my
2: neighborhood. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was Becky. <laughs> <laughs> hey!
3: No, I was very much in elementary school when that happened because my elementary school was next to the Amy Fisher high school and we had to have a talk. We had an uh, like an auditorium. What do you call it? Uh...
2: Assembly Assembly
3: we had assembly to talk about guns and how if a high schooler comes over here with a gun that you run and get a teacher.
2: okay, <laughs> Becky Joe, Butaffouca <laughs> <laughs> Amy Fisher. <laughs> not Becky,
1: shot the wife of her lover. She was 17 and she became known as the Long Island Lolita, as did Becky.
3: No! (laughs) Oh, actually, I'm the the Long Island Pocahontas, please.
2: (laughs) Long Island (laughs) Pocahontas. (laughs) Call back. Okay.
1: Media depictions of Fisher range from, you know, her being a victim because she was underage to being a vixen who seduced Buttafuoco. And Ball looked at this and thought that the truth was somewhere between those two things and wanted to do a story that kind of actually found, like where the truth between those two wildly opposing views lied. The script caught the attention of producers Dan Jinks and Bruce Cohen, and then DreamWorks, who bought it. Mike Nichols and Robert Zemeckis turned the script down. Steven Spielberg was a big admirer of Sam Mendes. Steven Spielberg obviously uh, involved with DreamWorks, so he was very heavily involved in this, as he was involved in all things that we've talked about on this (laughs) podcast, I feel like. (laughs) Sam Mendes had directed Oliver and Cabaret on stage... So Mendes had not directed a film before, and ended, and the studio was very nervous about having him, didn't really want him. So he took the job for the minimum that he could get paid, which was $150,000, and he took home $38,000 after taxes and commission. I, I assume that it paid off for him in some other way, but not necessarily directly. Mendes was also responsible for casting Annette Bening and Kevin Spacey. The studio wanted bigger stars. Uh, they had talked about Kevin Costner or John Travolta for the Kevin Spacey mm. role. No thank you. Uh, yeah. Maybe
3: Costner if they did some, you know... Meh. Yeah, I'm,
0: gonna...
2: I'm agreeing with Chris's sound. I don't think I can <laughs> actually repeat it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> WG40 over there.
1: Uh, Benning was coming off of 1995's The American President, and then a string of not-great films, Mars Attacks, The Siege, and In Dreams. Or at least, th- none of them were a big hit, so she was not a big draw. Spacey, though, had just won an Oscar for The Usual Suspects, and then was in Seven, L.A. Confidential, and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. So, he seems like good casting, like, I don't know mm-hmm. why they needed someone else besides him. Kirsten Dunst turned down the role of Angela, because she was 15 and did not want to make out with Kevin Spacey. Crucially, Conrad Hall was tapped for cinematography. He had done a lot of classic films, including In Cold Blood and Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid and... I think is as important, if not more important, than any cast member
2: in this movie. Yeah. Like, Oh, I think he's, he's at least 70% of what's good about this movie. Yeah. <laughs> like,
1: yeah. So, I know that you saw American Beauty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I we can skip you, that part of
2: the question. I will
1: ask <laughs> really you, can. what did you think of it back in 1999 or two thousand when it won Best Picture? And when was the last time that you saw it?
3: I saw it in theaters the year it came out. I remember a lot of other people saw it before me, and they were the ones that are like, it was amazing. Every single person I talked to was like, this movie was amazing. Easily the best movie of the year. And I remember seeing it and liking it. I think over time, I started to like the movie more. I wasn't completely in, you know, enthralled with it right away, but I bought it on DVD, and it became one of you know, the movies I watched regularly.
1: And when was the last time you saw it? Oh,
3: the last time I saw it? Um... Before this time was, like, two years ago. It was something, and maybe before that was maybe, like, five years. But I would say in high school years and college years, it was something that was on a lot.
2: Um, I know I saw it in the theaters. I'm pretty sure I saw it with my either my parents or, like, just my dad. And I really loved it first time I saw it. Rewatched it a lot on HBO. And I don't know, I feel like the last time I watched it, would have been during college, Becky, like you were saying, like it was on in a lot of film student gatherings and hangouts. I feel like that was the last time I rewatched it, but it's not really a movie that's like stayed in heavy rotation for me.
1: I'm going to talk about 1999 again. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just because when I was looking over that
1: list of movies that we talked about in the last episode of um, 1999 movies that were really huge, I saw very few of them in theaters, including a lot of movies that I have a lot of respect for like 2000 was actually my 1999 because that's when all those movies came out on video and that's when I actually discovered them. Um, Movies including like Fight Club, Magnolia, The Insider, Election, Eyes Wide Shut, Go, Dogma, Being John Malkovich, all movies that I saw on video and not in the theater and for the most part have not ever seen in a theater which is crazy considering that a lot of those movies are movies I would consider favorites of mine. And one thing I noticed when we were preparing for this episode and the last episode, Magnolia and American Beauty, is just how much watching these movies again reminded me of this independence that I found. Before this, so many movies that I watched had either been, like, action movies with my dad or comedies with my sister, or dramas with my mom, or things with my friends. And these movies really hit me in a way that they did not hit my friends. My friends would watch them and like them, kind of, but I just, I had this feeling that, you know, I cared so much more about these movies than they did. Um, I did not see American Beauty... Uh, in the theater until May of 2000, so a good nine months after it was released in the theaters. It had already won Best Picture, and that was my... I went on my 17th birthday because I was finally old enough to see a rated R movie in the theater by myself. So I I went by myself, and I treated myself to American Beauty, a movie I had wanted to see for months and months, because obviously I cared about the Oscars, I had read endlessly about it in Entertainment Weekly, and I mean, I think that's the perfect encapsulation of how much this was my own thing for another good year, basically, until I went to film school. And all of a sudden, like, everyone around me loved Magnolia (laughs) or American Beauty or Fight Club or all of these movies, Um, I had an American Beauty poster, you Mm -hmm. know, in my dorm room. I remember it. (laughs) (laughs) And just bonding over this movie and Magnolia. I feel like this one was a little bit more in just the the, the general public consciousness. We did scenes from this in one of my film school uh, classes. We, like, recreated scenes from this that were not as beautiful as the ones shot by
2: (laughs) Conrad (laughs) Hall, unfortunately. Not quite. Not quite. Not quite. On the Sony... Digital video camera.
1: <laughs> but, um, yeah, just this awakening that I had to... A bit like we talked about it in the Magnolia episode, too, but, like, what a film could do, like, how perfectly crafted a film could be, like, how much it could say through cinematography, through editing, through music. This movie in particular just hit me at the right time, and a lot of its craft is right there in front of you. It's not, like, a difficult movie to see that it is very well put together and very you know, beautifully shot and everything. So all those elements really, I think, influenced the kind of stories I wanted to tell and really pushed me toward going to, to film school, along with a couple other movies around this time. But um, I would probably say that this is the one that really, like, sealed the deal for me. So I liked it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's so awesome. No, I love that. That's such a perfect, like, 17th birthday thing to do. As like, I... I I honor that story.
1: (laughs) Of all the movies I could have chosen, I mean, I could have done worse.
3: I'm glad you didn't see She's All That on your birthday. (laughs) That was
1: (laughs) PG-13. I'm pretty sure the last time I saw American Beauty was eight years ago because i showed it to a friend in new york (laughs) so obviously since then i think public opinion on the movie has shifted a bit and especially with kevin spacey i was curious to like go into this movie and see what i hold up
3: (laughs) yes all of us (laughs) had that exact same thought chris (laughs)
2: yes some would even suggest it led us to this Alright, you can cut that. Out. <laughs> no, I cannot. I am unable. <laughs>
1: American Beauty was released on September fifteenth, nineteen ninety nine. The budget was fifteen million. It grossed one hundred and thirty million in the US and three hundred and fifty six million in the world. <laughs> Sorry, I wrote Billion and I was distracted by that. (laughs) It has an 86 on Metacritic, so it was well-reviewed for the most part. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone called it "...a triumph of acting, writing, and directing that defies glib description, the kind of artful defiance that Hollywood is usually too timid to deliver, a jolting comedy that makes you laugh till it hurts." On the unkind side was Jay Hoberman of The Village Voice. He said, Bland and nasty. American Beauty has the slightly stale feel of a family sitcom conceived under the spell of Married with Children. That did not stop the movie from uh, doing pretty well at the Oscars. It got eight nominations with five wins. It lost Best Original Score to The Red Violin, which seems odd Mm. because American Beauty's score is pretty well known. I think, like, you could play it to a lot of, like, movie people.
3: Um, I was humming it earlier and you didn't get it.
1: That's because you were humming it (laughs) badly. It was No Colors of the Wind, my friend. Mm. It lost Best Editing to The Matrix, and it lost Best Actress to Hilary Swank for Boys Don't Cry. But it did win Best Cinematography, Original Screenplay, Actor, Director, and Picture. So, some pretty good awards. So, what did you guys think about American Beauty in 2019? Becky doesn't look like she wants to go first. So, Becky?
3: Okay. This movie is... Beautiful. The acting is so good. The score is amazing. I love the score. I think this movie is garbage.
2: Becky, I want to hug you right now. Uh, I just... (laughs) But it won't make a sound.
3: (laughs) I won't begrudge anybody who likes this movie. I loved this movie. I'll tell you what happened, is that I loved this movie and would have, like, be like, yeah, best picture, of course, up until two years ago when I watched it for the first time in several years. And I was just so taken aback by the irrelevance of it, first of all. I think I had recently seen something like The Florida Project, or I was just like, who gives a shit about a white suburban upper middle class? man's ennui (laughs) like like i'm not saying that that wasn't something that people wanted to see in 1999 but watching it today i was like i don't give a shit about this boo i'm i have a house in the suburbs that's fucking gorgeous like i was just like i was so turned off by just the basic setting and premise alone and i couldn't exactly put my finger on what Made me not like it so much But this time I really tried And I think one of the things That I just don't like Is it is so beautiful That it makes you root for Kevin Spacey And I think he is detestable He's not worth rooting for at all And the things he does are gross and creepy and and disgusting and it's shot so beautifully that it it makes you root for him and there's a discord there that that made me realize like what was happening is that it's so good at these beautiful images and this beautiful direction that i think that is almost like wrong for what he's doing in this movie it doesn't feel like it matches and it makes it feel pretentious and just like unearned Yeah, I'll probably discover more of my feelings as we talk. (laughs) But I just, I came, and the Kevin Spacey thing, I really couldn't get over it. So for this movie, I can watch him in seven, but in this, I couldn't turn it off. It really couldn't.
2: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I loved this movie the first time I saw it, and the first many, many, many times I saw it, near the time that it came out. One of the more recent times I had re-watched it, which would have been probably four or five years ago, I guess. like If not back in college. The bloom was off the rose already. On a craft level, it, it is an almost impeccable movie. I think it is often beautifully written. Probably the best thing Alan Ball's written, maybe outside of Six Feet Under, you know. The performance performances are amazing amazing i mean like annette benning i feel like should have been the central character in this movie far and away she was so much more interesting than kevin spacey's character i feel like kevin spacey's character really is becky exactly as you're saying a creep and uh, an abuser who is grooming a young girl
3: this is my friend angela hayes
0: okay good to meet you you were also good tonight. Very precise. Thanks. Good. Nice to meet you,
3: Angela. Honey. Oh, I am so proud of you. You know, I watched you very closely. You didn't screw up once. <laughs> okay, uh,
0: we have to go. So, what are you girls doing now? Dad, we're going out for pizza. Oh, really? Do you need a ride? We can give you a ride. I have a car. You want to come with us? Thanks, but I have a car well you have a car oh well that's great that's great cause Janie's thinking about getting a car too soon aren't you dad
1: mom's waiting for you
2: seems like he would, like, be trying to groom any young girl that his daughter was going to school with, which is creepy in and of itself, but then specifically just becomes obsessed with Mina Savari's character. And I think there's a large degree to which the movie makes him into an anti-hero. Or not even an anti-hero. Kind of a hero. Kind of a straight-up hero. The faint near the end of having him choose not to actually have sex with her doesn't exonerate him of that, and doesn't change who he is as a person i think to a large extent kevin spacey's character in this movie reflects a kind of upwardly mobile white backlash to like the rise of women in positions of power and prominence and this is nowhere near the worst offender i just think that exactly to the question uh, becky's asking of like why this rich white guy is on we like i think that's very much a thing that was in the culture in at the time and especially is very loud in our culture now where white men cast themselves as the kind of victims of a feminized society that doesn't offer them the kind of sexual satisfaction or thrill from life that they feel like they deserve. I feel like there are a lot of characters in this movie who are weak and broken men. And I have like problems with Chris Cooper's character as well that we'll get to eventually. But overall, I think this movie has a very reductive view of human relationships and just sets up and excuses some really fucked up power dynamics that I don't think should be glorified in the way that they are.
1: Yeah, I have a totally different interpretation. I don't think Kevin Spacey is the hero of this movie at all. Um, And I don't think the movie condones his behavior, really. Um, I want to go into that a little bit more uh, later, you know, because it's a larger discussion. But to me, uh, this movie... I, I still loved this movie. I'll just say that. Like... I was... You
3: were wearing a shirt made of roses. I, I had a feeling.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I went into it wondering, you know, genuinely how I would feel. And I do want to acknowledge, like, the things that you are saying. I can see those things in the movie that that's a valid interpretation. And yet, like, I just interpret it really differently. And so I do think that there are things in the movie that are worth, you know, kind of challenging and picking apart, for sure. But, like, in general, I just fell in love with this movie all over again, watching it again. Like, it was a spectacular experience <laughs> for me, just, like, re-watching it, and, and I n- remembered the movie so well, and yet, like, there were things that I just, like, hadn't thought of in a long time, and it really brought me back. Like, in the way that we watched all those Disney movies a couple of episodes ago, and it took us back to childhood, it's like, this took me back to, like, a slightly older version of childhood where I was discovering like cinema for the first time and I just like kind of re-experienced that excitement of like how perfectly a script and and editing and music and cinematography and performance can all work together so to like put aside like the content of the movie for a moment you guys have both kind of said this already I just think like on a technical level I'm not sure that there's any other movie I can think of that where every element feels this Heightened and working so perfectly well together, especially like a movie that takes place in contemporary times and is not like a you know a period piece where,
3: yeah, I I know what you're saying.
1: The colors, the set design, the costumes here like everything.
3: Yeah, so much of this movie I think is instantly iconic, and I'll give it that for sure. It's
2: visually stunning, visually stunning.
3: The cinematography is incredible, the composition. There are so many shots that come to mind that I'm like, well, that's a painting like Kevin Spacey at the end with his face reflected in the blood or I mean, a Suvari you know on the ceiling with the flowers around her there are so many shots that are just beautiful photographs yeah I feel like the look of the movie like masks just so many of its flaws it's just so nice to look at
1: so just to like cover the plot for anyone who doesn't know it is the movie follows Lester Burnham who in the opening of the film tells us that he will be dead within a year so he's narrating the movie omnisciently he is bored with his job he's a writer for ad copy and magazines he's in a pretty loveless marriage with his wife carolyn they have a daughter named jane who's a sullen teenager and kind of the inciting incident of the movie is kevin spacey meets angela jane's friend who is i think 17 in the movie she's a cheerleader she's very beautiful and all of a sudden sort of his I don't know he's reawakened in a way and he starts standing up to his wife more he quits his job not just quits it but also like kind of blackmails his way into like getting like a year of severance and basically like lives like starts working out more starts living his best life to use a millennial term. YOLO (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, uh, Jane meets Ricky Fitz, who lives next door, who is a little creepy. He has a video camera. (laughs) He likes to tape things.
3: Little creepy. Little creepy.
1: (laughs) And they begin something of a romance, which drives a wedge between Jane and Angela a bit, because Angela thinks he's weird. She's correct. (laughs) Ricky's dad is a colonel and the marines i believe and he's angry <laughs> and repressed <laughs> uh yes and so basically all these characters kind of come together in various ways trapped or freeing themselves from the oppression of 90s americana
3: of living in their big five bedroom houses <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> their the safe neighborhoods.
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the movie opens with sort of several montages of the characters um, in very everyday lives. And Kevin Spacey introduces his wife Carolyn as her pruning shears match her gardening clogs. That's not a coincidence. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I found these archetypes just so relatable and so true to life is that like the screenplay does such an economical job of like telling you who these people are immediately and they're both cliche in a way but also like very specific the family dynamic that's on display here like my parents have some similarities with these characters and in other ways are not like them but just the overall dynamic of this family with the sullen teenager that was me the high strung mom who cares about appearances and uses sarcasm as a weapon and the downtrodden self-deprecating embarrassing dad like i think not everyone but a lot of people (laughs) in america can relate to this kind of overall family dynamic that is presented very very funny but also feels very very true to me it's dark comedy
2: yeah i think it's more specific to our experiences like growing up in middle class or upper middle class white suburbs Right. Like, I think it's really particular to suburban existential angst.
3: Not even suburb- upper middle like class. Like, white,
2: white. White in particular.
3: My life is perfect. American dream is happening here. Yeah, yeah. But wait, no, it's not. I'm yeah. still upset about something.
2: And, and the thing is, like, I totally share that with you, Chris. Like, And I think that's a big part of why I connected so much with it when I first saw it but i also have come to understand how kind of limited that view of things is i mean i also knew very intimately at the time how limited that perspective on the world was but yeah in retrospect i feel like it's a movie that like grants the hard-bitten white guy his sense of being masculine and sense of being macho through like sexual power and smoking weed and listening to like 60s and 70s rock Like, I I don't know. There's something about it that, again, it is specific to a kind of experience.
3: I just felt like this whole movie, we were being asked to identify and empathize with a man who is trying to seduce his daughter's teenage friend who blackmails his employer, even though he's the one doing a bad job, and he probably should be fired. He threatens to file a false report about sexual harassment on top of that. He is a father and needs to help support his family and decides to just quit his job and do all this without a care for anybody. Else, it reminded me a little bit of Falling Down, the Michael Douglas movie. Like, somebody just fucking loses it and decides to just like do whatever they want and say whatever they want, and that's definitely entertaining to watch. But I didn't like him at all, and I kept feeling like the movie wanted me to root for him. He says funny lines, he's entertaining, like when he has like the remote control car in the house, and she comes in and there's a new car in the driveway, and he's like, What did he say? I bought the car I always wanted, I rule. Like, I remember that getting a really big laugh in the movie theater. Uh, whose car is that out front?
0: Mine. 1970 Pontiac Firebird. The car I've always wanted and now I have it. I rule.
3: Uh Uh-huh, where's the Camry?
0: I traded it in.
3: Shouldn't you have consulted me first?
0: Hmm, let me think. No, you never drove it.
3: I laughed, you know, but I think just maybe being older and just watching this, I'm just like this guy is terrible. <laughs> he he throws the dinner plate. At, I just feel like if that was like my husband, I would grab my kid and leave the house. You yeah, know, he like, seems like
2: kind of a sociopath. Yeah, like and and that is presented as his liberation.
3: Like, if it was just, I don't even know. I mean, I, I'm not going to rewrite this movie. It just, it really rubbed me the wrong way watching it now, where I just really didn't care about him so when he's dead at the end, I I don't care. I'm watching him s- literally call his teenage daughter's teenage friend. Like, what did he think was going to happen? And and like literally trying to seduce her. Like, it was just really creepy to, y- yeah. Like you said, Seth. Like him deciding at the very last minute to not go through with it and have sex with her doesn't invalidate everything he's yeah. done beforehand. So that when he has that nice moment with the with the picture and he's like so thankful for his life, I'm just picturing like a pedophile. Like we're trying, we're seeing this beautiful moment with the pedophile and i'm like i don't care about the pedophile (laughs) and
2: he's like saying i'm proud of what i did
3: like i just i don't care about the pedophile and and how beautiful he thinks life is and how much he loves his wife and his daughter and had a change of heart just because he backed out at the last second when he realized you know what i mean like i know it didn't get that far in the movie but still like i don't think that's beautiful i think like watching that scene of of him ogling over Mina Suvari. And and at the end, like when she takes her shirt off, like I just, I think it's gross, but it was shot beautifully. So it made me feel gross watching it.
2: I don't
1: disagree with (laughs) anything that you're saying. I don't like him either. And I love this movie. I don't think that this movie asks you to like him. I think that it presents him in a way that a lot of men, his age, like white men, especially middle-aged men would enjoy him as a character and probably do and did, but to me the text of the movie doesn't ask you to root for him and I'm never on his side, like I don't actually like him as a character I don't think that the movie is really like asking it, like to me it feels like the Wolf of Wall Street where you're watching a character who is despicable and it's fun to watch him kind of like do these terrible things and yet I don't come away from that movie being like, yeah that Jordan Belfort is like a real stand up guy like it's clear to me that what he's doing is despicable i just find like what he does in this movie what he goes through is a heightened version of what so many american men go through is this midlife crisis where they realize they're not happy with their wife they lust after a younger girl they want to buy like a hot new car they want to quit their job and mouth off to their boss. And a lot of people don't end up doing that, but so many people want to, and it's because of this repression. And so, to me, I just feel like he's this sort of id of the sort of typical suburban American... Upper class white man, not supposed to be likable. I mean, he tells us in the beginning of the movie that he's dead. And I feel like that automatically paints him as this doomed character who is doing all of these things. And we know that they are going to in some way lead to his downfall and death. So to me, that never represents like, oh, wow, like look at this guy. Like he's, like I know that he's having a great time, but I never think like this is aspirational because this is going to kill him.
3: But, okay, like, I'm not 100% sure. Does he cause his own death? Because it seems almost like it is a happenstance murder, and that's why we're supposed to feel shocked and and sad when he's dead, versus he did it to himself. Like, it's his comeuppance.
1: Repression causes his death. So, this is where I find the movie, like, really interesting, is that, so there are all these characters... I mean, I think all of the characters in the movie are repressed. Obviously, like, Lester, repressed by his job and his marriage... Carolyn feels like she needs to be perfect, you know, she's the wife and mother, but, like, she can't really be herself, because she needs to, like, put all this artifice into everything. Jane is friends with Angela, who I think is, like, trying to convince her to conform, and, like, oh, like boys, like, be a cheerleader, you know, and Jane is, you know, growing up with these parents who I think would want to push her toward being like them. Like, her mother says, like, you're being unattractive when she wears, like, dark lipstick or something. And then, next door, you have Chris Cooper, who has repressed himself, like, in an even more extreme way, with, like, he's joined the military, but he's secretly gay and can't admit that to himself. And his wife is just basically completely silent and has, like, lost any sense of personality. The only character who is not repressed, sort of, in the beginning of the movie is Ricky. Um, He lives outside of these norms. And to a degree that he feels a bit like a sociopath.
3: Is a sociopath.
1: He's creepy i totally grant you that like i don't like ricky like i wouldn't i'm not like he's a great guy you know like he freaks me out a little the fact that he like looks at dead bodies and
3: and sets lawns on fire uh-huh yeah sure <laughs> and films people without their consent right <laughs> i got a problem with ricky too <laughs>
1: fair I, I so do i i have a problem with almost every character in this movie But, like, to me, it's still very true of the ways that people are. And so Ricky has somehow escaped from all of these trappings of society and then ends up kind of teaching Lester to do the same. And yet I feel like Lester and Carolyn, they both go on these journeys of rebelling against conformity. First Lester does, and that kind of sets Carolyn off and she has an affair. She starts shooting a gun and becomes much more joyful, I guess, as they say in this movie. But, like, it's not sustainable for them. So the fact that all these characters are so repressed and that, like, they break free of it is, like, eventually repression comes back. And I, I feel like this movie is about American suburban oppression and the fact that these characters who are trying to break free end up getting, like, caught back up into it and basically killed as a result. Like, the at least the older generation (laughs) That these people are doomed because they've chosen to live these kind of typical American lives and go into boring jobs and go into and become so materialist.
2: And repeat these like self-oppressive cycles that eventually destroy them.
1: Yes. And so like the adult characters in this movie briefly try and break free. Even Chris Cooper tries to break free when he, you know, tries to kiss Kevin Spacey. And yet all of these things lead to doom because like these characters have chosen such a dark path for themselves that they they chose the wrong path and to me this movie is really about the younger generation and ricky and jane and to a lesser extent angela and them still having the freedom to maybe choose a different path and so when ricky and jane like decide to go away together like they are choosing not to conform not to follow their parents footsteps, and I find that to be what the movie's really about, is that this sort of the the parental class and the sort of, like, patriarchy of America is doomed, and that the younger generation has this chance to break free, and it's sort of unclear whether they will or won't, but that they at least are free to try.
3: I get that. I just don't care about this character enough to, like, care what happens to him in the movie.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, like, spent most of the movie more intentionally focused on the non-Kevin Spacey characters and ended up this time around like getting more out of them in pretty much every case. I really like Annette Bening's character in this movie. Yeah, I
3: was gonna ask you guys, like, I just feel like this movie is so mean to her.
0: Janie, today I quit my job. And then I told my boss to go fuck himself, and then I blackmailed him for almost $60,000 past the asparagus.
3: Your father seems to think this kind of behavior is something to be proud of.
0: And your mother seems to prefer that I go through life like a fucking prisoner while she keeps my dick in a mason jar under the sink.
3: How dare you speak to me that way in front of her? And I marvel that you can be so contemptuous of me on the same day that you lose your job. Lose I
0: didn't lose it. It's not like, whoops, where'd my job go? I quit. Someone passed the asparagus.
3: Oh, 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 and I want to thank you for putting me under the added pressure of being the sole breadwinner now. I already have a job. No, no, don't give a second thought as to who's going to pay the mortgage. We'll just leave it all up to Carolyn. You mean you're going to take care of everything now, Carolyn? Yes, I don't mind. I really don't. You mean everything? You don't mind having the sole responsibility? Your husband feels he can just quit his job and you don't... Will respond. someone, uh, someone please ask me now? the okay, fucking guys, I'm not going to be a part of this. Shut up!
2: that's She's what i came away with
3: nag and this shrill like just I guess a she, shrill
2: bitch like, like she be, is painted as such a shrill bitch because i
3: i interpret kevin spacey's character to be seen as i don't think he's a hero but i feel like he's seen as some anti-hero then anna benning is seen as this like antagonist like always keeping him down and this, this shrill bitch like i just sucks <laughs> i just i i've got like a bad vibe from watching her character
2: and i think there's a degree to which her budding relationship with the State
1: Mostly his eyebrows (laughs)
2: featuring Peter Gallagher. Yeah, it culminates in the immensely quotable line, Fuck me, your majesty. (laughs) Perfect line. I really enjoyed it, but I felt like the movie was casting a negative spin on this character's attempts to kind of break out of her circumstances. And she's made to look sleazier for having done it than Kevin Spacey's character is made to look for grooming a child his daughter goes to school with.
3: Yeah, and I think what you were talking about earlier, like, the thing that bothers me is that we're looking at the story through his eyes like we know what he knows he's gonna be dead we see Angela through his eyes like we're seeing his fantasies it's not just you know a man having some sort of midlife crisis we're seeing him in his eyes breaking out of it lusting after this young woman this teenage girl repeatedly so I just felt like that made me not like him and not want to follow his story
1: yeah so the point about like Carolyn's character not Like, I do think she's given short shrift compared to him. And I think if you made this movie now like a good version of this movie would probably give them equal weight and like treat them a little bit more equally. I do think there's an extent to which you're supposed to kind of enjoy the zingers he he gives to her. And I definitely grant that that while I think being very very true to the 90s and just like the attitude of the 90s is something that's noticeable today. Like it it rubbed me slightly the wrong way. Like I I still really like the movie because I think Annette Benning is able to give enough to that character where I still see her as a real person. I think she does more for the character than the script probably does. I'm glad that she gets a few moments. When she and Buddy in the are in the hotel room, like and she says, you know, like I really needed that, like you do get enough of her where I feel like you're seeing her come out of her shell in the same way that Kevin Spacey does. But obviously you're not it's not given the same amount of time and there isn't as much of an arc for her character. Like at the end she's gonna confront Kevin I don't think she's gonna shoot him but she's gonna stand up for herself but we don't really get a total closure for her character i don't think
2: well and her last moment is collapsing into tears in a closet like uh, with his clothes yeah know. yeah
3: i really like Mina suvari
2: <laughs> i love Mina suvari i know you do she's a
3: blonde <laughs> she's you a love the blonde you love the bitchy blonde um uh, i think me <laughs> minu suvari gives great face
2: she, she gives, gives amazing. Face. She, she has really
3: amazing does. facial expressions in this movie.
1: Yeah, she has re- amazing lines in this yeah, movie. She, she really does. She
3: reminds me of Alicia Silverstone in Clueless in the fact that I feel like this is a star-making performance, and they really didn't do anything with this star-making performance after. But I feel like she is fantastic in this movie.
1: Connie Cardullo told me that his parents had to put him in a mental institution. Why? What did he do? What do you
3: mean?
0: Well, they can't put you away just for saying
2: weird things. You total slut. You've got a crush on him.
1: What? Please. You are defending him. You love him. You want to have like 10,000 of his babies. Shut up.
0: Hi. My name's Ricky. I just moved next door to you. I know. I kind of remember this really creepy incident where
1: you were filming me last night.
0: I didn't mean to scare you, I just think you're interesting
1: since 1999 (laughs) i have been saying minu suvari in this movie like i like this movie but i to me she is if not the pivotal part like she's the character that i come away with like liking the most which is weird but like also like i just think her performance is so good and like of everyone in this movie she probably got the most ignored because tons of people were oscar nominated like thora birch has a bigger role i
3: think she was ignored she's on the she's what people think of when they think of american beauty they think of her in the roses
1: Right, but as a performer, I guess, like, I, f- I feel like her performance is undervalued. Mm. Um, in ways, it might feel like playing a bitch is probably in general like underappreciated because it seems like it's easier than it probably really is but I do really love she's not like a deep character but that the movie takes this like kind of cliche character I mean obviously the tagline is look closer and it's basically about how people are more than their appearances and that she is the most superficial character and yet I don't know to me she surprises me the most in the movie that feels like she goes through the biggest transformation in the movie and I am just like I want a Mina Suvari sequel what happened to her after this.
3: Well, first oh. of all, she's right. She Jane should not be going with Ricky Fitz right, anywhere. Right, right. He yeah, yeah. is a creep. She is 100% right. I think she's relatable because we all want to like, especially when we're teenagers want to like talk a big game, but really like we're virgins and we don't know anything, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's very relatable, even if you weren't like the popular person in school or the hot person in school that I think that just that mindset is very relatable.
2: Also, I feel like she definitely has more personality to her character and more of a point of view than Thora Birch's character really does. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what Thora Birch's character once is looking for... She's just
3: a wallflower. She's
2: just a wallflower, like, waiting for a boy to, like, open her up. I don't know. Yeah. Like, that character felt really, like, a thin read to me Rewatching it this time.
3: Can we talk about Ricky Fence? (laughs) Like, I feel like the movie wants us to like him, too. And he is a super creep. And I don't want Jane to be like, Oh, a boy likes me. Smile. Like, I think that he's weird. Like, he's legitimately, like... Bad news. Red flags.
1: (laughs) Red flags. Don't (laughs) disagree. Ricky Fitz has always creeped me out. I've never liked him in the classic sense as a character. (laughs) I mean, I enjoy him as a character in this movie, but I wouldn't hang out with him. It's a terrible choice. And I think the point of the movie is that she's making a terrible choice that goes against what society would think. Like, that that she is making her own choice that her parents would definitely say, don't do that. Her friend is saying, don't do that. And she's, instead of listening to what, like typical society says, she's being like, nope, I'm gonna go with the creepy boy. But
3: it seems like the movie is saying that's the right choice, follow your own path, go with him, but like, it's the wrong, they're all wrong choices, like don't, like don't listen, don't follow your parents' path, but also don't go with Ricky.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay, so the original movie, it ended Originally with Ricky and Jane being mm-hmm. convicted for the murder of Lester. And that was filmed, I think. There was a trial. Yeah, yeah. there was a whole thing. Which I think was wisely cut out of the movie. Because that feels yeah. like too... Murder twisty, mystery? Yeah. yeah, it
2: feels like a fourth act for a three-act movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what? <laughs> and
1: despite like misgivings about the content of the movie. I think the movie is like perfectly structured. Where like every scene has a point. Like every line of dialogue has a point. Like, the movie, like, moves along really well. I think it's just really well-paced, and I can't imagine sort of this extra tacked on, like... I don't know how long it would take to get through that plot, but probably a little while. hmm So we can't really, like, pretend like that's there, but, like, the, the intent, I guess, was that they... It did not end well for them. So, I don't know. Like, I I guess maybe, like, that's a totally valid interpretation to think, like, they're going to be fine. But to me, I don't feel like this movie is asking me to root for anyone or think that anyone's going to come out of this movie well. I just, I think that she's going to go to New York and have probably, like, horrifying experiences in some way. Like, they'll probably break up. But she will have, like, gone out on her own rather than staying in this, like, suburban prison, like, with her parents. Parents. Don't do it, Jane. <laughs> yeah, seriously.
3: Um, What is wrong with
2: Ricky? <laughs> he m- might be a sociopath.
3: Like, something's wrong with yeah. him.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, I'm thinking, like, narcissistic sociopath or, like, borderline personality disorder. Like, there yeah. are a couple, it, it could be a whole range of things. He's
3: sending fires on the girl he doesn't know, her lawn. He's taping her. Yeah. Um, he is a drug dealer.
2: I I don't think Drug Dealer is, like, necessarily a... He sells weed. He He sells other things, too. In
3: 1999, it was a very illegal activity. And also, he's making bank because $2,000 for, like, a baggie? Right,
2: yeah. (laughs) Can we talk about that for a second? (laughs) Not to get too into the weeds here, but the marijuana pricing structure outlined in this movie is insane. Am
3: am I just... Was that correct at the time? I don't know if this was
2: the rates at the time. I'm guessing I mean, this is just like a
1: special weed, but even for a special weed, I'm like 500 maybe is right. like a place where it's like, that's a lot, but I'll pay it. I'll but 2000, and
2: that's not even an ounce. And he's paying like, yeah. what was it? How many thousand dollars? 2000. dollars yeah.
3: yeah, that's just another thing added on to Kevin Spacey. Why he's a piece of shit is that he's spending $2,000 on a baggie of weed. When he's a father.
1: I agree. I, he's a terrible father. <laughs> like I don't disagree with that at all. I think that's the point of the movie.
2: So.
3: How did- does Ricky have clients if he just moved to the neighborhood?
2: Well, you see, Becky, when you move to new territory and establish your jurisdiction, uh, they provide you with a contact list of local customers.
3: Right.
1: He moved next door, but he might not be new to town. He's not new to town because...
3: Angela went to school with him, Yeah, before.
1: So he's, he's been around.
3: All right, sure. <laughs> um, and what's wrong with the mom? What's wrong with and Janney? What is it that makes her silent?
2: What did they do to American Treasure, Alice and Janie? I
3: I wish that any of this was explored more. It it seemed fine in 1999 when I saw this, and I was like, oh, she, well, obviously she's fucked up. But I, now I'm like, well, how, how is she fucked up? Why isn't she talking? She looks, yeah, like what is wrong with her? Does she have brain damage? Is was the was he an abusive husband and? I
1: think, I mean, he's abusive to his son. I think it's like, clearly, pretty obvious he's abusive. I, I wish there was
3: a little bit more there. I was just like, what is going on? <laughs> it was more confounding. A little bit more would be nice
1: with what's going
3: on with this family
1: is his dad supposed to be also a Nazi with the Nazi plate? What's going on with that too? Yeah. Was he a secret gay Nazi? I mean, I don't know if he was a Nazi. Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I found that really interesting, especially in light of recent events in America. (laughs) Uh, This guy is the epitome of an American hero on the outside. You know, he served in the military. He, you know, is raising a son and a wife in the suburbs. (laughs) I guess he's not raising a wife, but he kind of is in Mm -hmm. this case. (laughs) And yet he has this, like, one little Nazi plate in his basement and all these guns. And to me, it just, like, highlighted, like, the fact that we idolize in America people who serve in the military and this sort of ideal of masculinity and conformity and, and whiteness and yet if that person goes all the way with it and it decides to be a Nazi it's like suddenly like slightly bad and it's just like this weird like what is the line between like idolizing like this like super macho aryan but in a way that's not a Nazi and then like also he's a Nazi like I don't know if I'm explaining that very well but just, like, it seemed like such a natural, like, progression for that character. And yet, from the outside, I think that is a character that a lot of people would admire. And so I think it just points out kind of, like, the hypocrisy of, like, admiring that to an extent and then condemning someone when they, like, take that to, like, another step above that.
2: I think that's a valid point, but I also think that the way that it's drawn in this movie is kind of so cartoonish and on the nose. And while I think this is, like, one of the best things I've seen written by Alan Ball, and there are a lot of, like, great lines of dialogue in it. I also think there's a lot about it that's really on the nose and shows you dramatically what's going on in the inner lives of these characters, and then gives you, like, overt lines of dialogue where people explain exactly what you're supposed to feel about the moment. And there may be less voiceovers in reality than I'm imagining there were, just because there was, like, so much dialogue that I felt, like, kind of got in the way of the drama of it. Because, like, I, one of the scenes I really, really uh, stood out for me when I was a kid seeing it and that I really liked a lot now was... Uh, thora birch and west bentley's walk home from school together and it's kind of just this really long languid sequence and it kind of has their whole courtship together but then it gives you a ton of dialogue between them for the entirety of their walk where i felt like just visually the image of them walking together over that long distance the all the sound effects the soundtrack that was happening at the time would have told that better and would have i don't know kind of in the way that magnolia would intentionally make some things a bit ambiguous i think it would have left a bit more room to feel out what was happening
3: so you're saying you wish that there was less dialogue in the scene
2: yeah i think there could have been a lot less dialogue in a lot of the scenes and i think that also might have affected the way that i judged these characters
1: yeah i think that there are moments that are a bit overwritten i think on a technical level the screenplay is so perfect maybe too perfect because i think that's
2: what i'm saying There
1: are so many lines that it's like, ah, that's the theme of the movie. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't bother me, per se. There are moments, I think, particularly with Ricky Fitz, where it feels like it might be hammering at home a little hard. Maybe just because his character is so weird and says weird things. Same with Chris Cooper's character. I do feel like his character is a touch broader than I would like him to be and maybe that's mm-hmm. a product of the 90s and just maybe they thought it needed to be kind of that overt for people to get it. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe that's not even true, but I do find like him as a villain a touch over the top and I very much love the scene where he like tries to seduce Kevin Spacey the way it's shot, like with him in the rain and the when his like hand kind of clenches over kevin spacey's back and Mm -hmm. it's just like this like scene of like repression and and longing like i think that does so much and that scene is great but up until that point like I, i think the character is like painted a bit too broadly which i would say is a genuine criticism of the movie is that certain elements of it are a little too perfectly calibrated and could just be like taken down a notch
0: Your wife is with another man, and you don't care? Nope. Our marriage is just for show. A commercial for how normal we are when we're anything but. (laughs) Yes, man, you are shaking. We really ought to get you out of these
2: clothes. Yeah.
1: It's okay.
3: Can we talk about the plastic bag scene?
1: Do you ever feel <laughs>
3: like a plastic I bag? I constantly feel like a plastic bag, guys. I don't all right. know about you. All right. I feel mean, right. like Let's one right it now. It. <laughs> it's been parodied so much that it was just super cringy to watch this time. Couldn't I couldn't get past it. Right. I was I mean, laughing all the way through it. <laughs>
1: i laughed a lot i have to admit i mean it's fine for me in the context of this like yes it's been parodied a lot but i don't know but i'm watching
3: it as just a person i mean this is why it's interesting watching these movies later because of all the things that have happened in between then and now and that scene has been mocked so much that i could not watch it and get a genuine emotion i was laughing Mm -hmm. and i don't know like is it beautiful (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like like it like like I'm really trying to uh, to just be in the w- movie and like is that beautiful <laughs> like the the bag like you know what I mean like I just did you get emotion out of watching that scene were you like with Ricky and I don't it?
1: think I ever have been really I mean I think it's cool like especially like when you first saw the movie I was like oh that's interesting like I wouldn't ever look at a bag like that uh, but I think I always found his character so weird that I wasn't to me like I just don't need to be like what the characters are trying to sell to each other It doesn't necessarily feel like what the movie needs to sell to me and I've can believe that ricky is that earnest and that jane buys it and yet i don't buy it and Mm. i don't need to like i buy that she buys it and that works for me on that level i don't know if that makes it
3: It does but i feel like the movie wants you to think that that's beautiful it's trying to convince you you weren't expecting this were you you thought it would be like a sunset or something like or a flower, yeah. or a butterfly, or just or a person, or you know what I mean. Think differently. I guess that's me- Apple.
2: was <laughs> <A little laughs> closer, closer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think at the time it was of a piece with moments like the frog raining in Magnolia, and then like it reminds me of like a later movie called Me and You and Everyone We Know. That has some kind of like moments of not magical realism in the context of this movie, but like his fantasy sequences are, you know, and, and so I think it's kind of like of a piece with that.
3: Could you get past Kevin Spacey? I mean, the Kevin Spacey-ness of it?
2: Yes.
1: I think partially because of how I've always seen this movie as, like, I'm not on his side, really. He's obviously the protagonist of the movie. To me, this movie reminded me a lot of the music we listened to kind of recently. You know, Green Day in particular, um, like, just railing against conformity and capitalism and the sort of, like, young malaise with perfection and and things that are nice and it's like, wait, what is the real problem here? And I found that that was the similar sentiment here and that this was a movie about adults kind of having this moment where they experience that, where I, I don't think adults usually do, but where Kevin Spacey is sort of becomes younger for a second and through like lusting after this younger girl and like remembering his teenage job where he was like flipping burgers is like suddenly becomes like kind of a teenager again and is questioning like, Oh wait, is this really what I wanted?
2: You can call that a kind of like trip to figure out where you're going next from there, like as a way out of the midlife crisis, or you can see that totally as regression.
1: Yeah, and to me I think that that music really says a big theme of that music and I think this movie is like that the parents failed and this goes through uh, Magnolia as well is that the failure of parents is causing the suffering of these kids and Kevin Spacey's character is having this kind of moment out of time where he is experiencing being a teenager and gets to live that again but in this way that is automatically doomed because we kn- we know he's going to die. He it does end up, like, leading to his death. And that the moment when he seduces Suvari's character, to me, represents that he sees her finally as, like, the next generation. And that he's kind of, like, saying instead of, like, corrupting you and, like, bringing you into this sort of patriarchy where, like, you're going to end up just, like everyone else is like, I'm going to let you like make your own decision and like kind of sets her free. And it, in a way it's him being like a father to her instead of his own daughter. Cause he's f- failed with his own daughter but like sort of I, I see it as like this sort of older generation and, and his character specifically like realizing that his generation has failed and that this is a passing of the baton to the next generation like his death kind of signals the death of all of this like American artifice and his, and that the hope of this movie in the end is that people will move on and get out of these traps mm-hmm. that, that the older generation is trapped in these kind of roles and that the younger generation may be able to break free.
3: I feel like it's different watching this movie now than when I was younger because when I was younger, I thought of myself more like Jane, but I'm closer to Lester's age now. And I think that's why I just feel like watching this now, this movie feels irrelevant because I'm just looking at their perfect house being like, well, I'm never going to own property. (laughs) You know, like it just feels like their problems, like people have real problems now that are that are Lester around Lester's age mm-hmm. you know like people can't afford their rent or healthcare it just feels like we have actual problems that we don't have time to have on <laughs> because they had this pretty little life so they could have time to be like what am I doing with my life whereas I feel like there are so many issues now as a 30 something or 40 something this movie just didn't feel relevant anymore and I think like a, a, a roughly around the time I started thinking that I was watching stuff Stuff. Like, I don't know, I was just watching stuff... I was watching the world around me, like, crumble. I think it was probably around Trump came in office and just, like, real shit was happening. And then I put on this movie where this white guy is sad. <laughs> and, like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> But to me, this movie speaks so much to, like, how that happened. Is that, like, Seth sort of said it earlier, <laughs> maybe Kevin Spacey's character was a Trump voter. This white guy who feels like he's been slighted and his wife is a bitch and he doesn't like his job, like... I don't feel sorry for him in this movie, but I feel that he's a real person and that there's a lot of real people who feel this way. And Kevin Spacey in this movie goes on this kind of fantasy version of what it would be like to rebel against that, which most people don't go on. But I feel like this movie perfectly explains that that, that generation like that was maybe 35, supposed to be 35 in this movie or 40, 20 years later is 60 and voting for Trump because they went through all this. And it's a bit projecting, but like, to me, like knowing that the younger characters will go on and deal with like more realistic things, I don't know that this felt like the genesis of all the problems that we're facing now, rather than like irrelevant,
2: I mostly agree with Becky, but at the same time, I am, like, stepping back from my own perspective on it, and I don't think I can weigh out how much of this is just my view of the movie changed by me being older— And how much of it is based on just the Kevin Spacey-ness of it. Mm -hmm. I think the Lester and Angela relationship is the key thread in the movie. But he's not, like, sexy to her. I mean, she flirts with him, but I
1: think we get this sense that she's doing it because she's desperate for attention, not because she actually likes him. And I, I feel like it's, like, he's embarrassing. Like, I feel like
2: every scene that he's, like... Oh, he is. I feel like he's regressing to, like, being his awkward teenage self in those moments.
1: Right, so to me, like, it doesn't
2: feel at all...
1: It is the central relationship, I guess, but it's not in a way that, like, we're never, like, on board with it. Like, it never seems like this is, a this is gonna work out. It's like, oh, he's fucking awkward, she's probably gonna laugh at him. It's kind of surprising when she goes after him, but, like, I'm never, like, yeah, like, yeah, these two belong together, or even in a, like, I don't want to see them hook up. Like, it, it's, it feels gross when they're about to, and he realizes that. Like, to me, that there's never a moment where that feels like a good relationship.
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of see him getting murdered at the end of the movie as, like, its own deus ex machina that exempts him from actually having to face any of what he did in the service of trying to, like, liberate himself from this. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that, too, in a way
1: that I like, because I just see the story as so fatalistic. Like, I don't think that anything that happens in this movie could happen unless we knew that he was dying at the end. Like, I feel like his death is written in, in the very moment that the movie begins, and that his first fantasy of Angela is, to me, it feels like a step toward death. Like, that he can do these things. Like but the that beckoning of
2: the darkness. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah, dooming yeah. himself.
1: So, yeah. if there was a version of this movie where he didn't say that in the beginning, and didn't die in the end, I would probably feel completely differently about this movie, but because it's just, it all feels so fatalistic that it just... To me, it feels like every moment that he's fantasizing about her is, like, leading him closer to death. I just wanted to shout out the editing in this movie, too, because we didn't really talk about that. There's a really cool effect in the fantasy sequences where, like, the same shot repeats, like, several times. And I'm surprised that that hasn't been used more.
3: Um... Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Like he's yeah. he's putting his hand towards the tub. Yeah, or she's she's, she's, she's opening, the beer. or she's opening her
1: her mm-hmm. shirt. And it's pretty much always involving hands, I guess.
3: It's a uh, mm-hmm. it. I did notice that, and I just felt like it was like um delay. It was like tension, you know, like it's delaying, like yeah. oh, well, like get to it, get to it, you mm-hmm. know. Um. Yeah. great. Yeah. I think was it's great. beautifully
2: edited. Yeah, I mean, along with the cinematography, I, I do think that elevates it so much.
3: Gorgeous. I just think it's trash.
2: Scott Bacula plays a gay
1: guy.
3: Oh, yeah, that's who that was.
1: <laughs> yeah, just like Magnolia, there are two characters named Jim.
2: <laughs>
1: two Jims.
3: I like that Mr. Smiley's has a free napkin promotion.
1: They do? <laughs> oh my god, I never noticed that.
3: Oh, really? No. On the drive-thru, it says free napkins. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's pretty brilliant. I did not notice that. I mean, yeah, that goes along with everything else in this movie. It's just that there's so much attention to detail, <laughs> arguably too much at times, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure that if you like freeze framed everything, like you would notice like something in every single frame that's like worth calling attention to. Just, I guess, to wrap up, like I, I find your interpretations like valid. I think the movie definitely, Lester Burnham is the main character, and I think that it's read the way that you guys see it by a lot of people, and that's why I think the movie has had kind of a backlash. Yeah, for me, I've just always seen it, like, in a slightly different way, and... And I think you can look closer at it. You could look at a plastic bag and see just a plastic bag. Or you can see something beautiful. And I choose to see something beautiful. No, I didn't mean to be quite that reductive about it. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that this is a movie that is open to a lot of interpretation. And I like the amount of Americanness that it reflects back. And it feels very much of the 90s. But in a way that I find like really fascinating to just go back and look at the 90s and be like, wow that was fucked up and to think about kind of you know the place where i came from and and just like not that this movie is too much like my life but just like to kind of see the tropes that i grew up in and be like huh this movie just feels like it does point out something about all that that feels truthful and and is fun to go back and and watch and see in in this kind of greek tragedy kind of exploration of that
2: and that's all the plastic bags and flower species we have time to list on the When We Were Young podcast on our next episode. Nick, 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 Nick. That's right, everyone. We've had our fill of Disney, so we're going to head over to Nickelodeon. And specifically, we'll be talking about the early 1990s animated Nicktoons. We're going to focus mainly on Doug, Rugrats, and the Ren and Stimpy show, but we'll also be hitting up all your other favorites like Rocco's Modern Life as well. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes or any of your podcast providers. And you can follow us on social media. I'm Seth Pearson. I'm Becky. And I'm an ordinary guy with nothing to lose.